Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 80, big milestone episode in the zone. There's uh, Chris Martelli over there. And uh, look who we activated off the IR, Anthony Piniello. Uh, we needed our emergency backup, Anthony, last week. Anthony Ciselli filled in. Uh, short notice, he was our David Ayers. <laughs> Came in, did the job, but uh, glad we got our full rotation in here. Uh, we're going to kick it off with Money in the Bank last week, uh, weekend actually, sorry. What did you guys think of this pay-per-view? It was something different. Again, they went back to the Performance Center, just like WrestleMania. Uh, it kicked off with a great tag match. Just uh, What was your overall feeling of another Performance Center pay-per-view? Uh, it was okay. I think when uh, when you look at back at past Money in the Bank's and you think of this one, this is definitely going to be unique. I, I really, I know we'll talk about the winners in a bit, but to me, it just fell flat, in my opinion. I feel like they could have gone a different route. But uh, I actually want to start off by uh, talking about Jeff Hardy. Um, he had his first match, I guess, on a pay-per-view in, I don't know, forever. Face Cesaro, of course, because it is going to be Cesaro out of any superstars. It's going to be him. He's going to be put in that position. Um, he looks a little more jacked. I don't know if that's just me. I think he looks like he's in better shape now. Uh, I don't know if that means he's going to get a push down the line. We all talked about maybe seeing Hardy versus Bray Wyatt or The Fiend. Uh, I, I, I'm not opposed to that, but it was just nice seeing Jeff Hardy back and, and looking like his old self. So kudos to Jeff coming back and, and wrestling again. I think for Money in the Bank, it's usually like, I think they adopted it as one of the main pay-per-views now. I think I put it in their big five, it used to be a big four for the longest time. It just kind of felt like a standard show. A few highlights here and there, but overall, just kind of an average show. So that's where I stand on that. So what matches really, I guess instead of going through the whole card, like it was kind of an average show, I agree with both of you. So what matches really surprised you that going into it, you were expecting, okay, maybe it'd be a good match, but exceeded expectations? With, yeah, uh, definitely, uh, definitely Drew and Seth. I, mean, I, think that, I think that's Pinello's answer, too. I don't know if it's another answer for him, but uh, we, knew that, we knew that they would be, uh, it would be a great match. We saw, I think it was two years ago, when we had Seth and Dean versus Drew and Dolph in that tag match, and that was just... That was insane. So imagine seeing that match except you have just Drew and Seth for the WWE title. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I think Seth Rollins, I really the thing that stood out was his new team. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like this side of Seth. We all know that he's a main event player. Drew McIntyre is looking comfortable as the guy. Can, uh, he has all the momentum. Um, but obviously the highlight for me was after the match when he shook his hand. I think that was just a respectful type thing, and uh, he's going back to the night. I think it's tough when you have, because uh, Drew and Seth have been putting on classics for so long, especially Seth. He has so many hidden Monday Night Raw gems. So even, like, I thought the match was good, but everyone was expecting it to be, like, fucking world-breaking because of the two guys, so... I could live with this match. For me, it was the money in the bank just because both of them, because I didn't know how they were going to go about it. So to see all this stuff happen backstage and everyone have their little comedic spots in there, I thought it was well done. I, I loved every second of the ladder matches. Yeah, I'm with you. I like the money in the bank, how they kind of changed it a little bit. And 
have that more cinematic feel to it. They're at the headquarters. Uh, Vince McMahon, they kind of played up to his germaphobe uh, mentality there with the puro on his desk. As soon as Daniel Bryan and AJ go in there to try and break some stuff, he's like, what are you guys doing in here? Wrong office. Get the hell out of here. Then goes right there with the puro. Uh, I thought that was a good moment there. AJ, Daniel Bryan, they even had the Undertaker in the hallway on that picture, and AJ had, like, some uh, PTSD from WrestleMania. He got stuck in the room there with the casket and the purple light. So it showed all all that WWE headquarters is a messed up place. They got a lot of rooms that have uh, some wild stuff. I don't know who's in charge of that, uh, why they want to have a coffin Undertaker room, but it's Vince McMahon's world. It's... uh, his office, his headquarters, he can do with that, but a little odd. Uh, but I also found it weird that King Corbin attempted two homicides in the match, throwing Aleister Black and Rey Mysterio off the roof. But, uh, yeah, j- typical match. Nothing you would uh, <laughs> expect out of the ordinary. Uh, what did you think of the winners, though, of both matches? Uh, uh, where do I start? Um, I mean, Asuka... I kind of saw that coming. For me, it was between her and Shayna. No one else had a shot. I love Lacey Evans. I think what she's done has been amazing, but I didn't see her winning this. Um, In terms of the men's, I know everybody loves Otis, and they're very intrigued with where it can go, but when you have a guy like AJ or Aleister Black in the match, I just feel like those are just... Those are the winners. Uh, I thought Aleister Black had a great media match with Bobby Lashley. I thought his momentum was on the way up. And now with this, I really don't know what to believe with Aleister Black moving forward. I mean, is he going to be a, a mid-carder for most of 2020? Is it better that way because there's no fans right now? I don't know what they're planning. But I guess right now it, they went the comedic approach with the men's money in the bank, which we've not really seen since... I want to say either John and Cena had funny where he slams it on Big Show and he just won. And then you had Sandow with Cody Rhodes, that whole interaction. So I really don't know what, the, what what's going to happen here with Otis. Maybe he's going to cash in. Um, but Pinello, you mentioned something pretty clever. So you take that away. Yeah, so uh, Otis, as much as I love Otis, the very first time he won, or when he won, this was the very first time that I thought, he's not going to fucking keep it. And he can eventually cash him, uh, cost him. But I kind of thought this morning, like, AJ had his fucking hands on the briefcase so he could get in there and start complaining, saying that he's the rightful winner. They could have a match for it. And then Dolph can get involved and possibly cost Otis the briefcase and they could still keep that feud going but you could put the briefcase on AJ maybe go for there. Yeah, I like that. That's uh, one because I think with AJ they kind of left that open with Undertaker because I don't know if they want to have that match again in the ring but if AJ wants to have another match with Undertaker one last run like tease that with AJ going over this time that could be one thing but could this also be another way with Otis where they can go and say uh, Dolph Ziggler is going to get him into a match for the briefcase like we've seen in the past with Edge and Ziggler and Mandy Rose. This was part of their plan the whole time. And unfortunately for Otis, this is where uh, the fairy tale ends. Yeah. I think I, think, uh, I want to even see Ziggler take it. 
take the money in the bank, kind of be relevant again, or I want to see what Pinello said and have AJ kind of get it, and maybe he could just cash in on Drew. And there you go. You're, you're, he's the WWE champion, the top heel. He doesn't have his boys anymore, but he could run by himself as a top heel in the business, no doubt about it. Um, but you know what? The biggest surprise happened the next night. Last was it no two nights ago when you when Alino you're like oh there's a big announcement coming on Monday Night Raw and of course we all find out that the Money in the Bank winner the women's Money in the Bank lasts literally a day where Becky Lynch announces that she is pregnant. So so successful reign of all time. She had it over a year. She didn't lose it to anybody. Then she had to vacate it because she was pregnant. <laughs> so, so I don't know if Oscar's a face now because like they hug and everything. I don't know what they're gonna do moving forward. But yeah, what are you guys' thoughts on on that? Because I was laughing. That was hilarious. So uh, that was a curveball. I really did not see that coming. Uh, just watching Seth with all the segments after even made it that much more funnier for me. But for Asuka, like, she's got the title now. Not the ideal situation on how she won it, but she's got it. I think she should fuck people up on Raw for the next little while. Just prove, uh, show to everyone that you're that dominant champion that everyone knew and loved in NXT. Pick up the ball where Becky left off. This is an interesting situation, too, because Becky now had the title for a year, over a year. She went through everybody, and now this happens. She didn't lose the title, but she has to vacate it for obvious reasons. Do you think WWE is going to regret now making her look so dominant the way she was able to beat contender after contender? Because now you're looking at a division where I think they messed up because uh, Ruby Riot's out of the mix now. She got beat. Uh, can't put Liv Morgan there yet. Do you think they're going to regret uh, these long reigns going in the future, especially for the women's division? I think they uh, they put themselves kind of in this situation, you know, from the get-go. Uh, when you have a woman, you know, be... Okay, well, it, it all started when Nia Jax basically punched her lights out. That was when she started getting... You know, we all loved her. All the wrestling fans always loved her. She was always amazing. But, like, you know, you get that heel turn, and then you win your big moment. I think it was at SummerSlam she won. And that was when, okay, like, you're going to be a badass here. But then all of a sudden, everybody started loving her so much that her badass persona turned into a stone-cold type, like, pop. And she was, like, the you talked about it on our pod, like, a year ago. She was, like, probably the top face in the whole company above like the Seth Rollins above all those other people so when you're the top face in the company it made sense that she had the run that she had especially you know after winning the Royal Rumble and all that last year and then dethroning champion that no one wanted to see in Ronda no offense to her but no one really cared for her being the champion we all knew she was a part-time so I don't know if it's like a mistake um, but I do see that they did have a lot of great talent. Like you had Ruby Riot, you had Alexa Bliss was injured like a couple times. So Nia Jax was injured. So again, you got to remember, like we've been talking about this for so long, me and Pinello, that 
the roster for women, it's very thin. You go from Charlotte, Becky, and then the rest is just kind of like on a completely different tier. Sasha Banks was never, she never gets anything either. So you got to remember that. Um, I just feel like it is what it is. It just happened. And now they got to just deal with the consequences. And this is where Vince, you got to start being a chairman and you got to build talent. So this is where, you know, you can maybe see a Liv Morgan. You could see a rejuvenated Ruby Riot, a Nia Jax who finally came back. Throw these people in the mix, and then we could finally maybe have an interesting, you know, women's uh, division. Finally, you think that uh, eventually we're gonna get to see Ronda versus Becky again a few years down the line? It's possible, yeah, sure. <laughs> Just because, uh, you know, Ronda was dominant champ for a long time, and then she left because she went to go get pregnant or, or pre- whatever she called it. She had like some her name for it. And then Becky, raw chance for a very long time and then ends up leaving for the same reasons. So Rhonda should come back and say this fucking wannabe fake wrestler Becky Lynch is trying to copy the UFC legend that is Ronda Rousey and then they could butt heads again and then bring up the whole four horsewomen thing all over it. Cena type build. That'd be like a year and a half in the making. It's like, yeah, we'll talk about it now, and then in a year and a half, that's when the match is. <laughs> Another uh, thing that was interesting on Raw was this whole Andrade situation. He is a champion, but I think they're doing these champion versus champion matches a little too often now with him and Drew. Like, should they just give somebody else a U.S. title and just give Andrade that main event spot instead? Um. I guess for now, yeah. Uh, he, he just beat Seth Rollins. Uh, I know Seth is still going to be in the mix, obviously. AJ Styles is there. But it'd be pretty cool to see Andrade kind of be one of the top heels on Raw. Again, there's no crowd. What harm could it do? But in terms of the U.S. title, we've been saying this since John Cena had it. They don't know what the hell they're doing with it. Um, you, you put it on a guy that's been deserving, and then you shit on the whole freaking run. Just like with Shinsuke, just like with Rusev, the list goes on and on. Um, I remember, I think it was a year ago, we were so happy when Shinsuke won it. And we're like, oh my God, this is going to be an amazing run. And then he, we didn't see him for like three months. So I don't know if that's because he was doing live events or whatever. But the mix for a long time has not really mattered at all. So they got to start doing that. If anything, I, I hear that maybe Lash is the next guy to... Not the case. Maybe give him the U.S. Maybe give our true U.S. title. Give it to a guy. Just live in. What's going on, boys? Yeah, Chris, you cut that. Yeah, you cut out. <laughs> All right, so we're back. Yeah, so what you were seeing with Lashley, uh, Jinder Mahal is another guy that, I don't know if he was even turning face in this whole backstage promo. I thought that was a little odd when he said, I'm going to work, be like Drew, and I'm going to win the title again. So him, I don't know what the hell they're thinking with him. Maybe he's a face, maybe he's a heel. Maybe that was just a test run, but uh, Jinder's in the mix. 
Uh, we got MVP now siding with Bobby Lashley, finally. So that could be good for him. But now the brand split is uh, slowly phasing out, I guess, with uh, this whole Performance Center stuff. So for the time being, we're going to have a lot of guys going back and forth. Should they be doing, like, these one-off matches like they do with Finn Balor, AJ? Should they do, like, Ray versus Jeff Hardy and, like, mix it up like that for the fans? Boys, you're cutting out. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Yeah, so should they? would you be interested if they went, like, in that AJ Finn Balor route and at a pay-per-view, like, backlash, just say, okay, we're going to give you guys Ray versus Jeff Hardy? This is for, like, the brand split coming up? Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, I'm still kind of fixated on that U.S. title picture that we were just talking about. I would still leave it on Andrade just because he's been so good with uh, – you know, the matches that he's been putting on with Drew recently, I feel like he's really earned that spot as the top guy on Raw. If they just feed him to Drew, I feel like they're going to set him right down the pecking order. So they should keep it on him for a little while and do some uh, stuff with Jinder and Lashley, those guys coming up. So, yeah. I like it. Don't hinder Jinder. <laughs> the answer is believe with Andrade in terms of like star power like we know he we know the star, we know the wrestling qualities there we know that for sure we know he's got Zelina Vega he's got the manager but you know when Drew as a champion right now that's hard for him like to to be in one of those key spots and you got to remember Kevin Owens is also injured so yeah that's that's where i kind of agree kind of keep the U.S. title on him just so he can still be looked at as one of those top guys. But when he loses that title, I want to really see what what he's what his definition is in the WWE. Like, is he above mid-card? Is he mid-card? Is he sub-main event? Like, I don't really know what Andrade is. And I think that's the beauty of it. We really have no idea what he is. Kind of like a black. No idea what he is. So, again... Uh, just keep doing something with Andrade, but you gotta again, you gotta make the, the mid card titles gotta make it a little more meaningful. And like you said, Alino with the the brand split, I feel like they should maybe defend them a little more on SmackDown and Raw. Like do like oh like tonight we're getting a brand split special where you have Andrade versus Jeff Hardy the U.S. title. Like do something like that. Um, obviously, you don't have Jeff win it, but just to bring this up as well, because we all see that viewership has kind of been down lately. So I feel like that would be, I think that's also another reason why Vince is doing it, just to kind of freshen things up. A bit. So uh, another matchup that we have here that going forward could be uh, a main event type of thing on SmackDown, Braun Strowman getting one over on Bray Wyatt. So... I have to think now it's going to be the Fiend versus the Black Sheep because he brought the mask out, he wore it. So what kind of match are they going to gear towards that would help protect Braun Strowman going forward? Um, you got you to gotta do either the Hell in the Cell. I don't think they're going to do the Firefly Funhouse. Um, maybe Last Man Standing. I, I don't really know how you could protect Braun Strowman in this in this scenario because the feed has also been beaten already. So uh, 
they're putting in a corner, but they know it. Um, I really like what Braun Strowman did at the pay-per-view where he, again, he only faced Bray Wyatt. He didn't face The Fiend, which I thought was smart. I didn't want them to just do The Fiend versus Braun Strowman and have The Fiend win. And Braun's reign is literally like four weeks. Like that would have made no sense. Um, I don't, I kind of want to see Braun win one more time against Bray. Like, I don't know if they're going to, uh, pen, like if they're going to have the fiend go at SummerSlam instead of Backlash, I don't know what's going on there, but I do obviously the, the, the fiend's obviously going to win eventually. We're all anticipating that. It's just I want to see what this storyline is going to like, how it's going to hold out because you know, there's not a lot of there is history there, but there's not that much history. It's just it's it's the black part of the white. Eric Rowan and Arthur split is them too. So I, I don't know. I really don't know what to think of this feud. I mean, the match at, at Money in the Bank, okay, it's not going to go over 10 minutes. So I, I don't really know what you guys think. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm kind of harsh with these two guys, but I, I don't see it being a sudden match. Because the first time the fiend comes to life is when I think the story is going to be over. So, um, I don't really know what they do in the match. It could be no holds barred, hell in a cell. I just I like seeing these two together. I like seeing them click. They work really well together. But the second the fiend comes to the party, I think it's over, boys. Yeah. So I uh, guess we'll leave it on that for wrestling. Uh, time to go back to hoop. Because uh, the last dance again, unfortunately, there's only two episodes left this weekend. Uh, we got to hear about the baseball side of things of Michael Jordan's career. And that whole uh, strike led him to go back to the NBA. So when he came back, they had that on the episode where they got beat by Orlando. And that was like a big thing that he was in baseball shape and he wasn't in NBA player shape. And it took him a lot to get back. And then that summer when he's shooting Space Jam. He used this pole and they built him a dome where he can just do whatever he wanted, work out, do scrimmages with all the players. So what do you think of uh, the Bulls losing to Orlando that year? And is that like one of the biggest what ifs if the Bulls got to the final and we could have seen Michael Jordan versus Hakeem Olajuwon? It is a what if for sure, but I love that. I love how he lost to Shaq and Penny Hardaway. I thought that that was kind of like, that was a wake-up call for MJ. Even though you're the GOAT, when you leave, you come back, your body's not going to be the same. you got to get in that shape. And, you know, he knew that when he faced the Magic that year and you had Penny Hardaway, who, in my mind, is one of the most underrated guys in the NBA, in, in NBA history, and you have <laughs> the most destructive force ever in Shaq. It, you know, when they lost, it's like... He came back and it was going like this. He's like rubbing his eyes. He's like, oh shit, like I gotta, I gotta start working out again. And, you know, the whole dome thing. And, you know, <laughs> the thing I love about MJ was how aggressive with his teammates. <laughs> He's like, oh shit, we lost. You know what? Okay. I guess we gotta get him. I guess this is the new distance. Next time we face him, they're We also saw that with Gary uh, Payton later on in the episode. <laughs> it's like, hey, we almost got to 
moral of the story is MJ always kicks the enemy's ass. But uh, that was that was definitely a one. Alino, uh, I really wanted to see MJ versus Elijah Wan in the final. That would have been wow. That would have been amazing. And again, that would have gone full circle. Both both of them went in the same draft. That would have been a story as well. And we don't know what the result would have been. It just fueled them that much more. I think Horace Grant being on that team really, that's like extra salt on the womb over there. And then you even knew next year, like they're even saying in the interviews, like if we know Mike, he's looking at our fucking team and he's like, we are going to kill them because he is just not used to losing like that. So like, yeah, you saw it the next year. What was it? Was it a four game sweep? Can't remember now. Yeah, so just... Oh my, I think Horace Grant was the X factor there. That extra salt on the wound to motivate that whole Bulls team to just smash them the next year. Yeah, so uh, these final two episodes are probably going to go into the end of that dynasty. Are you surprised that Michael Jordan didn't use his poll? Like I asked this last week to Giselli, but uh, I'm going to ask you, give you the opportunity to answer too. Do you think, like, are you even surprised Jerry Cross lasted that long? And Michael Jordan, you would think the best player in the world, the biggest star in the league, would have said, all right, I'm coming back if you get that fucking guy out of this team and fire him. <laughs> but yeah. He's a loss for words. Big Jerry Cross fan. <laughs> I feel like uh, Jerry Cross, man, like, that guy... Why, why did he do what he did? Like, I can go on and on about the dynasty and everything, but, like, Alino, I agree with you. If I'm MJ, if I'm the greatest player ever, and, I and you know, I want to keep Phil Jackson, I want to keep the band, you know, I want to keep the band together, just go up to the owner and be like, did you see my stats last year? I averaged 35 and 6, and I was the defensive player of the year, and I was the MVP. Like, I would easily would have been like, yeah, like get this guy out of here. Like I don't want him a part of it. So if I'm MJ, I don't know if he did it because, or he didn't do it because, you know, he's, you know, he was an icon. He was a well-known figure. I don't know if he wanted his image to kind of be tormented and kind of, because remember what we talked about last week with the whole gambling uh, situation and we had that problem. He didn't really take, uh, negativity well I mean at the beginning of his career because you know he was almost perfect so um, I, I think that's why he didn't do it I feel like he didn't want his image to be you know tormented and torn so I think at the end of the day what mattered to him most was just playing the game of basketball and and winning with the team he had it regardless of who the owner was so I think that that's what the main thing was but I just want to quickly talk about um, in episode seven, Alino. I know you didn't. I don't think you watched it. Um, I just want to talk about that Father's Day game in the finals. What do you think yeah. that meant, to Michael Jordan, when he when he finally won, and you know he got that ring for his dad? Yeah, that was huge for him because uh, of course he passed away. Then he went to go play baseball, retired. So to come back and win that—that's the first championship he won with his dad there. So. That was huge for him, and I think that was kind of like a weight off his shoulders because he probably was like, okay, I'm going to win this, and it, he was able to get those emotions out the way, and 
get back to like dealing with it and coping with it. So I thought that was huge for his career and his confidence going forward. And I think that Jordan winning it that way uh, was just a showcase of he's still that good in the league. He hasn't lost a step. Uh, a lot of people may be thinking when he lost to Orlando, okay, maybe Jordan's like tailing off a bit. It's going to be on the decline. So for him to come back, win a championship uh, in a full season that he's playing, I think was just a reassurance to the league that he's still the best. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, even the way they they dealt with it, the teammates, they kind of they let him just go in the room, and you know he didn't like the, none of the teammates went in the room. It was just him and the photographer, and he was just bawling for like felt like the 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 photographer said he felt like ten minutes straight, just him, you know, on the floor rolling around crying and. Um, we all got to remember that, you know, James Jordan was there for him all the time. He was always there for him. And it's it, as sad as it was, you know, any, any family member getting tragically murdered is just, just awful for anybody. But, you know, the fact that Michael Jordan was all about hard work and motivation, that just motivated him even more just to win and as soon as I, as soon as I saw that in the documentary, I'm like, okay, this guy's just gonna blow everybody out of the water. And then, of course, on Father's Day, out of all days of the year that an NBA final can be on, it's Father's Day. He ends up winning it for his dad. So I think that's actually one of the greatest final results ever in the history of the game. And you just talk about. That's the one thing I liked with, with Jerry Krause in that situation. He knew what that game was about, and he probably – I don't know if it was him or Phil Jackson. They told the teammates, okay, guys, let's just give MJ some time in the dressing room just to kind of, you know, get his emotions out. Um, he basically had a mental breakdown, and uh, that's probably easily his most that's, – that's probably his greatest – uh, a championship win out of all of them. Kind of like when you think about LeBron James, I know a lot of people hate comparing LeBron and MJ. Um, it's like when LeBron won in 2016, you know, when he won with Miami, you know, he had the super team, he had the boss, he had Dwayne Wade, he had all those guys. Again, when they won the first time, they beat a hot shot OKC Thunder that never amounted to anything, unfortunately. But, you know, LeBron James, 2016, he literally comes back down 3-1 and he starts bawling in the middle of the court because he did it for his hometown in Cleveland. So you can kind of, there's kind of that connection there where, yeah, you know, LeBron, in my opinion, is right up there as one of the greatest of all time. Him and Michael Jordan, literally, I know it's a completely different emotional journey. Uh, one is, you know, a family member passing away, but both of them, you know, having that emotional uh, championship victory is definitely, it's very special to both players. Yeah, and uh, even going on to that, like winning the championship and then going in, they got Dennis Rodman after they lost to Orlando, so that was obviously a big one for them. But what do you think of like some of the moves that happened afterwards? Because, okay, of course, Grant is on the other side. Uh, Armstrong's on like another team in Charlotte. Do you think Jordan was... Uh, Looking at that is okay. I have to prove to these ex teammates of mine that I'm still good, and I can't let them get one up over me. Do you think that just 
that competitive edge is what led to him maybe taking a break from basketball? I don't know. Uh, he, again, like when you talk about teammates and uh, MJ was more of a teacher than a teammate. He was kind of like uh, above the teammate role. He was like a coach. Kind of like what you see LeBron doing now. He's like a coach and a player at the same time. But yeah, I, I do agree with that statement where um, Horace Grant dipped, Armstrong dipped, and he kind of, I, I could see him looking at it and being like, okay, these guys want to leave. Well, we'll see about that. So yeah, I think at the end of the day, Michael Jordan was always about competitiveness, motivation, and just, you know, proving, you know, if you want to leave him, you could leave him, but he will bite you in the ass. And, uh, you know, he did that. And like Pinello said, uh, with Horace Grant going the other way, he probably, yeah, he looked at that team and he's like, okay, we're going to kick their ass. And of course, what happens? He sweeps them the year out. So I do think. Oh, we got Anthony Pinello joining. Pinello, you there? Can you hear me? Uh, I hear you. Uh, Chris uh, might be <laughs> on the way out. I don't know what's happening with Skype today, but. Uh, it's been a messy one. Yeah, Chris is back, and Pinello's back. So, uh, Chris was uh, talking about here, of course, Grant. Uh, take it away, Chris. Yeah, uh, just I think, you know, at the end of the day, it was all about, um, you know, just that competitive edge that MJ had over everybody. And uh, I just feel like, like I was saying before it cut out, is just sometimes teammates turn into enemies, and that's unfortunate, but that's just the business of, you know, professional sports. And MJ always had that in his mind that, yeah, you could be my teammate one second and then you could be my enemy the next. So when you were MJ's enemy, things didn't turn out so well for you. Yeah. So, uh, Pinello, before you covered earlier, uh, I was asking you, because last week I asked you to sell you this, but were you surprised Jerry Krause managed to stay that long in Chicago and that Michael Jordan didn't go up to the owner and be like, these are the numbers. These are the ticket sales. This is the demand for tickets. This is the jersey sales. This is my resume as a player, the championships. I'll come back if you get this fucking guy off the team. <laughs> I was surprised he's been there that long <laughs> with everything that's been said. Um, I said it the very first time we watched the first two episodes of The Last Dance. Like Jerry just seems like he keeps getting in his own way. And there seems to be all these made-up problems within the room, and he seems to be the source of all of them. So, uh, very simple answer on that one before I cut out again, yeah. <laughs> Should Jordan have uh, been scouting, like him and Pippen? Should they have been looking at GMs, like anybody around the league? Even Phil Jackson, I think, could have stepped into the GM role, and they still go to one. Like, yeah, yeah I'm just going to sign this guy. You're on a PTO. Let's uh, go win another championship easily. Let's go 50-1. and one. I think they should have taken more of the charge there. I'm surprised you don't hear more about that. MJ and Scotty recruiting certain guys. Like I think Rodman was the only one they brought in to replace uh, Horace Grant. I don't know if you guys talked about that before I cut out, but uh, yeah, for sure. I just feel like the reason they didn't recruit was because they felt like they didn't need to. I think that that was kind of that's just who they were pippen was a guy on the rise when he joined the bulls and we all know you know he, he did have his you know his attitude problems at times but 
that was in large part because of Jerry Krause. Uh, we all know the whole bus incident where they fought and all that, but um, yeah, I, I feel like they didn't recruit people just because they thought they were, they didn't need to Jordan and Pippen. I just thought that they were, they thought that they were the best and I don't think they really needed a lot of help. I think that's, that's always been MJ's uh, mentality is I could do this by myself. No problem. So uh, again, that assassin mentality plays a big part in that. Yeah. So uh, that's for the last dance. Looking forward to this weekend, the final two episodes. Uh, it's going to be detailing that last championship and uh, everything that followed. They're going to probably be talking about how after that lockout, it was pretty much a different Chicago Bulls team. They went right down the shitter and uh, MJ came back after it went to the Wizards. So well, a lot more material for next week. But uh, onto the pond because uh, Gary Bettman made the news. He is saying, I don't see us uh, just canceling the season. He's committed to having a Stanley Cup playoffs. Sidney uh, Crosby yesterday with Darren Drager was talking about different formats, and Drager like kind of brought up what format would you like prefer, and Crosby wouldn't be opposed to doing a best of five, best of three for the entire playoffs of 24 teams, which is what's being proposed right now over a March Madness style. So, like, the single elimination, you win, you go on. It's much more exciting, makes people do brackets and probably gets more invested into the product. So, would you like to see a best of three or five going through a playoffs of 24, or would you prefer that March Madness single elimination style? Uh, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I want to see a March Madness type thing in the NHL. I feel like leave that for the NBA if if that were to happen. I, I do like the best of three idea. You know, it's shorter. It's still competitive. Best of five to me kind of that's that's up in the air too. I think that just depends on how um, in shape the players are. I know Crosby said he wants to do the best of five, but again, it depends on how how much in shape you are. I, I do like the best of three where that could be like a short and sweet type thing where, yeah, you know, you win two games, that's it. Um, single knockout, it could be a little harsh. I feel like that's kind of like, oh, like you're, you're, you're putting the whole season at risk just off one game. Like, I, I don't know if players would like that. So if you want to kind of make it short and sweet, but not single knockout, I think best of three is the perfect scenario for the NHL. Yeah, I'm going best of three all around. Um, with the teams that are currently in the playoffs. <laughs> um, I give them like a two, three week span just to get their legs kind of back underneath each other. But like, because you jump right into it, you're just going to like so much cause risk of injury. Like you, like you could be working out all the time, but unless you're actually in the game, it's a completely different story. So maybe two, three weeks of some exhibition games between all the playoff teams and then start the best of three. Yeah. I agree. I was a little on the fence of this. Like last week I was talking about, okay, for the product, you would want something where it's going to save the players from getting exposed to something, having them in there for a short amount of time, maybe like two weeks over single elimination. But as they were bringing up formats, and now that you know it's probably going to be 24 teams that make it, the bottom seven will go into the draft lottery. I think best of three would be perfect for the preliminary rounds. Then once you get to the final, for the, just the Stanley Cup, I want to see it just one game. 
because it will probably bring the most revenue from a commercial standpoint. They're not going to have anyone in the stand, so they're losing money on ticket sales. If you want something that's going to get the biggest TV rating, a sudden death, one game, whoever wins gets it. Follow that model of March Madness and uh, soccer. They've done so well at doing that and generating the most for a championship game. And it would help the NHL in the States because their TV contract, they need a new TV deal. And if they want to have players make that kind of money that some of the NBA players make, it probably won't be $35 million a year. But if you can get to a position where some of these guys can make $17, $18 million a year, I think it would benefit them getting the most out of this one NHL shortened uh, playoff run, having a one-and-done Stanley Cup final. So, kind of, I want to see the best of three, but if it's the final, get the most possible interest into it for one game. Yeah, I like that. I think best of three is good. And then when it comes to the final, you could do like a Super Bowl-type feel where you could hype, 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 hype yeah. it up, you know, wait like a week. And, like, you could do, like, a, a montage of, like, the best highlights per each team. You know, you could make, like, let's say it was, like, Toronto versus, I don't know, Colorado. You could pull up, like, Austin Matthews, Marner highlights, McKinnon, Rantanen. Like, you could just pull up McCarr, like, all these highlights. So I could see them doing that in terms of if they need more revenue, which they do. Every, every sporting association has lost a lot of money. But, I, I mean... I still think the best of three all in all is the perfect thing. If you want to kind of still have that playoff type feel where, cause if it's single knockout, you know, a lot of people are going to kind of tune in, like you're going to have that peak tune in where everyone's going to tune in. And then if it, what, like Alina, what if it's like two teams that no one gives a crap about, like, let's say it's Winnipeg versus Carolina in the final. Like, I feel oh, like boy. that's the knockout. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to really do it justice. So I still think maybe a best of three is the right way to go. Do you think they would do a, a best of seven just for the finals and then go best of three, like the way the AHL is set up? Oh, man, I hope not. Yeah, that would be <laughs> media attention that would make sense. It's See, like it, it's between best of seven or single knockout. That's probably the most intriguing out of like viewership. It's either a one-off or it's a long, painful process. That's how the brain works. It's either you want to see something happen right away or you want to see it, you know, a team well-deserving get, get you know, four straight wins. So I don't really know. It's, it's tough to tell. I think my answer to your question is if it's going to be single knockout, let's see who's in the finals. And if it's two teams that are – have a nice name, you know, like the Leafs and someone else or Tampa or Boston or, you know, uh, Edmonton, you know, they have David, let's just see. Um, but for now, I don't know if the single knockout's the, a smart move for Batman. Yeah. And also there with, uh, if you do the best of seven, I think in the final, you're probably postponing the season longer than you want for next season. Because if you do best of three in a final or even a single elimination final, you know there's a target date where you know it's done 100%. And you can have the draft, you can plan free agency, you can plan everything else after that. If you go seven, there you have to target different dates because, okay, it could go to five, it could go to seven. But if it's like the three, it can go one and two. And then after single elimination, you can end it earlier. And then next season, you get the most possible 
interest, you get the best quality. And maybe November, if you cancel the preseason, you do like their own training camps, best team makes it. Uh, I would like to see if you go best of seven, though. What if you have Winnipeg and Carolina in the final in a best of seven? <laughs> that could be. I still think <laughs> I can maybe have a yellow talk more about this one, but like, I'm just going to stick stick it as is. If it's two teams that no one really cares about, either way, the re- like it's not, the viewership's not going to be there. I know like you could talk about like, okay, I'm going to compare you guys to finals recently. Like you had the Blues and the Bruins last year, which I thought was – that's like the defi- – those two teams are the definition of playoff hockey. You're, you know, you're defensive, you're hard, you're physical. Those two teams were absolutely tremendous. And then two years ago, you had one of the most incredible type stories where you had Ovi versus the expansion team. So obviously I think – in terms of storytelling, the Vegas-Washington final was better, but I still feel like the viewership was up last year because of Boston-St. Louis. So in terms, again, it's it depends on where you are in the standings. It depends on what superstars you have on your team. It depends on the storyline throughout the season. So... Again, maybe Carolina would actually get some viewership because of David Ayers and what happened there. And you have Aho and you have all those great young players. And, you know, like we, what we saw last year, they were the great underdog team that overcame. But again, I think it's just it, it's just about storytelling at that point in time. Could be fucking Arizona and Detroit in the finals. People are going to tune in. Imagine Taylor Hall. <laughs> This is the Leafs' time to win, in my opinion. Yeah, years. It's this year with all this shit going on. They got all these young legs. They should get. They should have an advantage over all these other guys. Do you think it's also good for the Leafs that there's no fans in attendance? There's they're gonna have to deal with fans like booing, all this bullshit that comes with it. They want to deal with all the media members, maybe like five. They want to deal with fifty. And they can just go about their business. For all we know, they're probably playing at Disney World. They're probably playing at Universal Studios in Orlando. A lot of different places being talked about. So they don't even have to be in this bubble where all negativity and this guy did this, trade him. He's not playing good in the playoffs. They can just shut that part of their brain off. And you think this actually leads to them maybe winning a Stanley Cup? I think the team that benefits the most is the Leafs the Oilers and the Flyers. And the reason I say the Flyers is because their fans, when when the Flyers are not playing well, you've seen it firsthand, they will boo them out the building. They will throw stuff on the ice. They're just ruthless. I feel like Philly and Toronto have the odds. think if Yellow. Testing for Pinello. One, two, three. There it is. All right. Well, See, so for that question. But uh, yeah, absolutely. If uh, for most cities, I'd say no. But for the Leafs, if you cut out all that extra nonsense, I 
I think it can help them. There are a lot of young guys on that team. They can just focus on their game, play some good old puck. It'll help a lot of guys like Nylander and Mitch, I think. So if you could just block out all that negative stuff, focus on your game for a fucking month, because that's probably how long this is going to last. Yeah, the Leafs and the Oilers, a lot of the, uh, a lot of teams with young legs should probably benefit from this if the season comes back. So that should be interesting. Uh, hopefully, the Leafs have something positive. I think they need some positivity because I saw today a score update reminding everyone that seven years ago today, Boston beat Toronto when they had that comeback and Phil Kessel scored and everyone was going, buying tickets for the next round. It was all looking good. They come back. Poor Reimer. Should we uh, bring this up? Well, you just did. Yeah, sorry about that. That was a scores problem. I would have forgotten that, put it in the back, but... The most haunting experience of my life. I remember watching that with Pinello. I had the I had the privilege to watch it with Pinello, and uh, me and him had the same, basically the same reaction. You know, I put my face in a pillow, and uh, I think <laughs> I think Pinello, I think you, I don't know if you were sitting on a chair. This guy just got up. <laughs> it was just one of those moments where, like, you always knew that the Leafs would blow leads. But you're up four to one. You're on the road. The pressure is not on you. It's more on Boston at that point. And even like, dude, the crowd was dead. Like it was silent. And then all of a sudden, I don't remember who scored the second goal. I think it was Bergeron. I could be wrong. But as soon as they scored that second goal, we folded like a cheap seat. We just folded completely. And I, I still can't believe it to this day. I feel so bad for Reimer. But again, you look at that Leafs team, and we had no business making the playoffs at all. Um, I still have nightmares of Mark Frazier stick handling behind the Oh, net. my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He was so fast. But, like, yeah, that was the lockout year. Uh, I <laughs> We were probably on pace to fall out and get the fucking fifth overall pick, so that was good for us. Get some experience. And I don't even know if I, if I think the Bruins were just so much better and they had so much more experience. And we were up 4-1 and we got we, we just got too cocky and too comfortable and they fucking took it to us. And I will never forget that day as long as I live. Yeah, and even looking at that team, Grabo, Coleman, MacArthur, love that line. Yeah, uh, Matt Fradden, loved him. He had some uh, great grit, kind of uh, played well. They had the McLaren Orr in and out. The defense, they uh, I think they scratched Cody Franzen for game one. And uh, no, Jake Gardner was scratched, which didn't make sense at the time. Everyone was going free Jake Gardner. They had him out of the lineup in exchange for those Marley guys who... Had more of a season, like Holzer and Frazier. And, uh, oh, yeah, Koska, don't forget him. Elite offensive defenseman. Uh, this just it points out another question. How good was Phil Kessel? I mean, at that time, he was a top 10 player, offensive player in the league. And you talk about it coming full circle. You know, he was on Boston. 
Um, he had that, he had that breakout year. I think, uh, what did he have? I think it was the second or third year with Boston. He had like 60 points and that was when they're like, okay, you know, we have this guy named Tyler Sagan. So let's ship this guy out. So they shipped him to Toronto. And then of course the first playoff series in a decade, we faced Boston and Phil was actually, he looked comfortable. He, he didn't look phased at all. And then of course, you know, the whole breakdown happened, but I feel like Phil Kessel, you know, we, we rank him as a top two leaf of the decade. And we say that for a reason, you know, he was a part of a terrible leaf team. Uh, he was over a point. Of, he was, I think he was relatively at a point of game in his leaf career. Um, but yeah, uh, Alino, he was, he was definitely amazing. Phil, he, he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. It was our, uh, he was our best for a long time. Phil was fucking, we got him at what, 22 years old? Just starting to yeah. enter his prime? Fucking electric down the wing. It's too bad we couldn't really build a team to suit his game. Um, I know he had his best year. In, he had like 92 in Pittsburgh one year, but his best stretch of hockey came with us. His most exciting playoff hockey. Like when we first got him and everyone was saying, this is the face of the franchise or what you know, whatever you want to say about Phil. A lot of the old school guys were pissed off. Just because, like, he's he's kind of a soft-skilled guy, and he's a quiet guy, and he's not fucking Wendell Clark or Doug Gilmore. But, you know, Phil's one of those guys. This is kind of the way the game's transitioned, and uh, a lot of people didn't realize it at the time. But Phil's uh, one of those guys that broke those barriers. So he was money for us, and uh, I miss him. Yeah, I'm with you. They're still paying him, just like a lot of guys. Uh, it's kind of frustrating when you see the guys that they brought in to try and be a Band-Aid first-line center like Tim Connolly. Uh, Grabowski and Bozak worked out well. All the rumors, oh, let's go after Brad Richards. He's available. Oh, uh, New York's going to give him a nine-year deal, front-loaded deal. Didn't work out there, so good times there. But uh, Kessel, I liked when he went to Pittsburgh. He didn't just say, no, no, I'm not going to be a fourth-line role-player coasting. I'm taking over. Leads the team in scoring, leads them to a cup. Should have won an MVP, con Smythe that year, but sorry for another day. Uh, Phil Kessel, though, I think with Toronto led to something where players coming in, when they're rookies, they can look at, okay, if I'm 21, 22, and I'm a scorer, Kessel's a guy that is a good uh, example of a guy. If you're coming in at 21, it's possible to make an NHL lineup and be a top six. So it kind of opened the door a little bit for some of the guys coming up after. Like Marner and Nylander, they took a chance on them. Uh, Nylander went on to the Marlies, but I think it was positive in that, like, Toronto for so long, you wouldn't really see guys come in right away, and I think Kessel proving that in Boston and coming here and really rebuilding that was one positive of that horrible era in Toronto, so it was an interesting run for the Leafs. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just want to quickly talk again about what Pinello said about, like, breaking barriers I never really looked at Phil as that. Like, I, I do think he was one of those guys. I mean, for, like, our organization, you, you you talk about, like, a different style. Like, Matt Sundin was the center that we never had a winger for. Um, Phil Kessel, the winger, that we never had a center for. Uh, but <laughs> Phil Kessel, yeah, like, he was a different type of vibe. He came to Toronto, and, you know, he was quiet, was skilled, but he wasn't that leader. And uh, when you when you call someone the face of the franchise – I mean, this was, again, right 
after we got this guy named Luke Shen, who we got fifth oh, overall, man. and he was supposed to be the face of the franchise. <laughs> Literally, like, it's amazing what a year does. I mean, we go from having a gritty defenseman as our face of the franchise to a skilled winger the next year. So it was pretty funny. That is exactly – that's the definition of Leafs hockey in the 2000s. We had no idea what <laughs> what our identity was. So – um, I do agree in that sense, but Bill Kessel, man, I do have that jersey. I love Phil. He's always going to have a special place in my heart. When he won, when he won that cup, holy crap, was I happy! Anything to add there? You know what? No, he won the cup, and that's why we played the game. I'm killing it on that two-time champion. <laughs> boy. Uh, also, just uh, before we wrap up here, another interesting rumor going out uh, on Twitter was trending. Bruce Boudreau was trending. And so I click on it. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Did he sign somewhere? Is a team already camping out and saying, you know what? Season's done. Fuck this. Set up shop for next year. It's a rumor that uh, Toronto's assistant coach is uh, taking another opportunity for next season. And apparently Bruce Boudreau is a leading candidate to be the new Leafs assistant coach. Uh, is this a way of, uh, okay, we're getting some offensive help in here, or is this Shanahan's way of telling Keith and Dubas, uh, this doesn't work, your ass is packed and uh, ready to go out the door, and I'm bringing our boy Bruce to come in and be the head coach? Take it away, Pags. I'll go with the first one, because the second one sounds like more of a problem. I think bringing Bruce in, that's an <laughs> experienced guy for a, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> We had a lot of solid offensive teams. So if you were, <laughs> you bring him in to kind of coach Keith through the way and turn him into a help him to turn him into a starting coach, I think that's a solid duo. So regardless of where they're going in the future, if you snag a guy like Bruce Boudreaux, I thought that only does good for you. I just want to see Bruce Boudreaux in the locker room if they do like a series. <laughs> guy's hilarious. <laughs> Remember all the swearing he did when he was on Washington? It was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, he was just swearing. And I just want to, if they were to do like another winter classic and he's there, I just want to see him just swearing at guys like Matthews and Marner. I feel like that would just be gold. <laughs> well, if, if he were to go to the Leafs, maybe, uh, you know, his aggressive uh, coaching method can maybe bring out a little more aggressiveness out of Matthews and, Marner and especially a guy who is not physical at all in Alex Kerfoot. So um, we'll, we'll, I guess we got to wait and see. But Boudreaux with uh, with Dubas, that sounds pretty funny. Like I don't, I don't know how that would work out. Uh, we all know that uh, Dubas is about metrics and stats, and uh, Boudreaux will bring those offensive stats to the Leafs. And we're already an offensive team, so I think the fit is there. And uh, also, like, looking around, the free agent pool for coaches is probably one of the best we've seen in recent years, probably going back to when Tortorella and <laughs> Lindy Ruff were available. Uh, Tortor I don't think Tortorella will get fired in Columbus if they fail to win a round like last year. I think the way their team is, nobody even expected them to be in the playoffs, and they're still grinding away. So I think his job might be safe for another year. So looking around at the coaching pool, we got Gerard Gallant, our boy Mike, and uh, a few other names like Boudreaux, Randy Carlisle's available. 
where do you see some landing spots for some of these guys? Where would be a great fit? Uh, especially you get a, the good pro, Mikey, back in the mix. Where do you think he lands? Uh, I don't uh, – based off the backlash that he got, I don't know if um, teams will be looking at him right away. I think the, the top guy that you mentioned might be Lindy Ruff. He's got a lot of experience. He's been flipping, flipping around for, I'd say, five years now. I feel like he could kind of, you know, be a head coach somewhere. I, I, I do think there's team, a lot of teams in the league that don't have an identity. They don't really know where they are. Like you have the Islanders, who for some reason all year have been a playoff team, and I don't see them as a playoff team. Uh, Columbus, you know, Tortorella, if he gets fired. There's a there's a nice spot right there uh, for Tortorella. Alan Vignon is another guy where I don't know um, if he's going to get fired or not, but, but I, I I'm really interested to see if any of these coaches go to like Detroit or L.A. like a bottom feeding team because even like a team like the Devils like they're they're in a situation where they're either going to be really really good in two years or they're gonna just stay the same so a lot of these coaches in Igalino I don't really know like where these coaches could go because you know uh rosters and identities can change with the blink of an eye but I think uh, if I'm a coach I want to go to a team that has a good mold of young and experienced players. I don't want to just go to a team like, let's say um, like, like Montreal, like if I'm a coach and I go to Montreal, I don't want to just go there because it's Montreal and the history there. I want to go there because they have a good core. They have a good couple good players. Like they have Carey Price, they have Gallagher, they have a couple others, you know, they have Suzuki coming up, Stuff like that. So I think if I'm a coach, you have to think about that long term and you got to think about job security. Like if you go to a shit team and you have one bad year, you could be packing. So yeah. uh, I think a lot of those coaches have to take that into consideration. They got to bring different methods to teams. And again, I don't know who the coach of Detroit is, but they got a lot of work to do. Thank you for the answer, buddy. Mike Babcock. What's that? <laughs> Sorry, cut out there. Where's Mikey going? You got the inside scoop on Mikey? Poor <laughs> <laughs> Mikey. When, uh, he's going down the road and he's going to sign with the team that everyone thought he was going to sign with, and that is the Buffalo Sabres. Oh. So is Jack Eichel. Going to get him fired after the first season, or is he going to have a clause in there to say, if he's not a good pro, I'm staying for more than two years? <laughs> I don't think the contract like he did with us, but uh, it should be a pretty lengthy one given who he is. Uh, I think he shouldn't go much longer without a job, really. Like every coach eventually gets fired. Whenever a coach like gets fired, the last few months leading up to that is always fucking brutal. It's never his fault. It's just the way it goes sometimes. Bob Cocky's an amazing coach. I want to see him back in the league. I want to see those fucking interviews. And I want to see him right down the road in Buffalo. We can keep the fucking rivalry going again. Let's go. Well, can you imagine if he flips it now? Like, as soon as he goes in, everyone knows the stories about him. And he just comes in and embraces it. He's like, he's not even going to hide it anymore. He's going to go into the talk to the media. He's like, well, you know what? He's a piece of shit on the ice. He's not good. I'm going to go in there. And he's going to be on the press box because uh, he's not a good pro. 
<laughs> I spoke to five people who said he's a bad guy, likes winning, likes to win hockey games, bad guy. Great hockey coach, bad guy. <laughs> That's just it. Uh, I guess on the last question I'll ask is, who do you think will be the first coach of Seattle? Not all these guys are out there. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know what? I will give that one to uh, jo to uh, John Quinville. I know he just got signed in Florida. I don't see that lasting very long, but I want to see maybe Joe. Or you know what? Let's keep the trend going. Gerard Gallant. He doesn't have a job right now. He signed with with Vegas. Let's go with let's go with Gerard Gallant again. He could be the first coach in NHL history to say I coach back to back expansion teams. So I'll go with Gerard Gallant. <laughs> That guy has been on the move, like for real, the last few years. I would not count that out. But uh, He's did you mention? Uh, did you mention Tort's contract before? That would be an interesting one. What does he have? Like two years left? Yeah, yeah he, like, he has one. Yeah, he's. If he's up, I want to say him. Because, like, <laughs> I don't know the contract situation, but he would be one of those guys. He could really uh, whip a new team into shape and show them how to all play together. So, like, you were pretty much the reason why you picked them to fucking uh, to beat Tampa. You know, they got a, they got a great thing going over there. <laughs> I can't handle you right now. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Torter. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with uh, an interesting one. It's happening. What Randy Carlisle. I don't know. I don't think he'll stay out that long. That's only if Seattle was coming in now, I think Randy Carlisle, but because they're coming in in like 2021, that's, I don't think he's waiting that long. Randy's got a lot of things on his plate. Once he get back in the league, he's getting up there in age. I don't think he's going to wait that long. So I like Chris's answer with Gallant. I think that's interesting. Or if Babcock is just going to still camp at home and, make like five million dollars maybe it's him but i think those two are the front runners but yeah that was a fun episode episode 80 getting up there slowly creeping into the 90s and uh in about 20 weeks time we'll be at number 100 uh this was fun we're back in my crib <laughs> oh yeah hopefully by then it'll be uh safe to leave our house and uh yeah, gather around because uh, this Skype thing in and out and sometimes my internet's not fucking cooperating. Can't even send the link out because it freezes and the WhatsApp thing. So it's been interesting. Nice uh, getting accustomed to it is uh, pretty hard and fun, but that's our pod. So this is episode 80. Boys, this was good. Uh, that's Chris. Uh, great to have Anthony Piniello back in the mix. Uh, for this week's episode next week definitely the last dance we'll recap that maybe something comes up in wrestling and uh for sure the nhl will have a decision by then so guys thanks a lot Peace.